Our Father, we are a people who have been, by the finished work of Jesus Christ, saved, delivered, redeemed, rescued. We are a people whose plight was an eternal piece of doom until, until Jesus Christ accomplished what he has accomplished in our stead. That you have found a way to save someone as wicked as I. We bless you, O God, that the cries of your people to save now have not gone unheeded. You have saved, and you have saved to the uttermost. You have saved a wretch like me. And I pray, O God, that what might flow out of my life will be an everlasting thanksgiving. And that we as a group of gathered, saved people will find greater and greater reasons to praise you and thank you and serve you and sacrifice for you. Our Father, uh, the world continues to concern us, but it's a world that has lost its way because it's lost its sense of truth. We are being forbidden to search for it, being told that it is intolerant to do so. And yet, oh God, there is nothing that will make sense out of life. There will, there's nothing that will allow us to integrate with reality besides truth. And so, Father, might we be agents of distributing the truth that we found. We are a group of people who have not only been called, we are a group of people who have been sent. We are called and sent. We are sent to a world that is losing hope. And I pray, Lord, knowing that hopeless people do hopeless things, that you will raise up your church to distribute that hope and to do it now. Our Father, for those who come with an added burden, whether it be physical or marital or familial or professional, I pray that you will give them a sense of gladness, a sense of assurance and certainty and security as we gather for worship today. And we pray that they might be able to leave, being reminded that all things we are told, all things we are promised, work together for good to them that love God and are the called according to his purpose. And so, Father, might that resonate at the deepest parts of our soul. Lord, thank you for the privilege of giving. We, um, you have given us a lot. In fact, there's nothing that we own, nothing that we possess that you didn't first give to us. And so out of that, out of that storehouse, out of that bounty, we get the chance to give back, to let you know we know where it came from. So, Father, take every dime and use it to advance the cause of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Grab your Bibles, if you will, and open them to the 15th chapter of Mark. Don't forget that uh, we don't have a service this Wednesday night. We do have one this Thursday night, 7 o'clock. Bring a pie. Mark chapter 15. I'm going to enter at uh, verse 21. It is, of course, the story of uh, the last event in the life of Jesus Christ, or at least uh, prior to the resurrection. It is his crucifixion. So if you'll stay with me. I'm beginning at verse 21, and we'll read through verse 39. 
And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of, the, place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was called, and it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani, which means... My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let, let us see whether Elijah will come to him to come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. The grass withers, and the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. Gang, there's a, there's a lot of stuff in those verses that I just read you, those 19 verses that I just read you. There's a lot of things in here where, that, that could occupy our attention. Uh, for instance, verse 38, where we're told that the, that the curtain of the temple was torn in two. E- extraordinarily significant. Um, it's this rending of the veil. If you don't know about that veil, we're, we're not going to spend any time much on it, but um, it's a, it was a curtain that separated the holy place from the holiest of the holies where the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant was, uh, sat. And, and um, Jesus, at his dying, that curtain is torn in two. Rich, rich significance. And we could talk about that for the entirety of our time. Or perhaps in verse 27, those two robbers, they're probably far more than robbers. You didn't crucify a robber, um, but you did crucify a criminal um, that was probably guilty of sedition. But we can talk about those two guys. There's, um, there's a lot of uh, import surrounding their crucifixion. For instance, it even influences your whole view of baptism and the issue that comes up several times a year about deathbed conversions. You know, we could spend time with that. 
Or we could go to verse 33, um, where the darkness shrouded this event. What, what, what is all that about? Uh, darkness at noon, the sixth hour, uh, which lasted for three hours, um, to cover perhaps the horror of, of what's going on, perhaps even cover the nakedness of, of the Savior. Uh, we could, we could spend time there, and I think we could do so beneficially. But perhaps the most important thing in this entire text uh, really has to do with the question that is asked in verse 34. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I, I can tell you, ladies and gentlemen, that uh, all of Christian theology is an attempt to answer that question. Why did the Father forsake the Son? Uh, gang, we could spend hours trying to find an answer to that question. And by the way, there is one, and, and a very satisfying one at that. But that, We could spend our time beneficially focusing on just that question. There's a lot in this passage that, um, that deserves our attention. But I'm not going to take you to any of those four. I want to draw your attention to verse 39. Um, which I think is a strange anomaly in this, this whole, this whole section here. Um, I, I want to suggest to you that, um, that statement contained in verse 39 is absolutely dripping with irony. It's, um, it's like it doesn't belong here. I mean, this is a, this is a story of darkness and gloom and doom. And all of a sudden, you get this statement by the Gentile centurion. Hey, this guy was, he really was the son of God. It's like it doesn't fit. It doesn't belong here. It's a a smile in in a sea of frowns. It's this this little flicker of hope in an otherwise hopeless setting. What I think it does, among other things, is, is that it introduces us to one of the, um, one of the great beauties of our Savior and the redemption that He brings. And that's what I want you to fix your attention on with me this morning. This, this statement of irony, tucked, woven, into a scene that is nothing but doom. Let me tell you what I mean. First of all, you need to know who said this. It is a, um, of course, we're told that it's a, a Roman centurion. Everybody knows that a, that a Roman centurion was a, uh, an officer who was responsible for a hundred men. That's what centurion means. He has a hundred men, a hundred soldiers under him. And this centurion, no doubt, is um, the commanding officer responsible for the little detachment of soldiers that um, put Jesus Christ to death. If you saw uh, Mel Gibson's The Passion, you saw those guys and probably saw one represent. By the way, um, 7.30 Friday night... If you've not seen Mel Gibson's The Passion and you'd like to see it, it'll be shown here 
in the uh, fellowship hall uh, this Friday, on Good Friday. But that whole scene of those soldiers uh, who governed and supervised these last hours of Jesus' life, that's who this guy is. But as the, as the commanding officer, he had quite a good spot. Uh, in fact, we're told that he's standing right opposite him, uh, that is Jesus. He's standing uh, facing him. He's watching everything. He had seen everything. He had seen him uh, endure this savage um, scourging prior to his ever getting to Golgotha. Um, the, the placing of a thorn of crowns on his head. He'd seen all that. He had walked with him down the Via Dolorosa. And, and uh, he supervised as human flesh was nailed onto wood. He saw it all. You know, Jesus makes a statement in John 12 about when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And I've wondered if this centurion is one of those who's as he's being lifted up. I guess the most notable thing about him is not that he's a Roman soldier in charge of a hundred people. The most notable thing is that he's a Gentile. A Gentile who ascribes to Jesus a title that was strenuously denied him by his covenant people, the Jews. You know, guys, there's a, there's a, a story in John 5 where Jesus claims to be the Son of God and the Jews understand what he's saying and they say, well, listen here, we can't let him get away with that. We can't let him call himself the Son of God because to do so is to claim deity for himself. So we cannot allow him to say that. We've got to kill him. That's in John 5. Um, I want to suggest to you, gang, that in some ways, verse 39 of chapter 15 stands as the climax of the entire Gospel of Mark. And I say that for this reason. Mark opens his gospel this way. This is verse one, chapter 1, verse 1. Mark says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then later in that chapter, chapter 1, he is, it is affirmed that he is the Son of God by the Father. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. You need to listen to him. And so from that point on, throughout the entirety of his life, throughout the whole three-year ministry of his life, the, the, the Jewish audience was so offended that he made this claim. So offended that they said, we got to kill him. And this is it. This is their solution to his claim to being the Son of God. we got to kill him, and he's being killed here. And then... In the midst of that, a Roman centurion, a Gentile, says, oh, oh, yeah, (laughs) you know what? (laughs) He really was. The Jews hated that idea. And here's a Gentile saying, yep, 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 he was. All this opposition for three years on the part of Israel... All of it overturned by a Gentile soldier. This great ascription of deity comes out of the mouth 
of a Gentile. Now, perhaps even more significant, at least to me, than that is when it takes place. That is, when this statement takes place. It's pretty obvious. Um, but right, right when his enemies might have concluded, Ooh, <laughs> Ooh it's over. Oh, no. No, it's not over. It's just begun. In fact, in this moment of abject weakness, gang, this is the nadir. You know what an apex is, don't you? The apex is the top. The, the nadir is turned over, the bottom. The abject nadir of his life. We find somebody calling him the son of God. Who's he calling the son of God? Well, just the man that I saw writhe in pain when we nailed his hands to a piece of wood. You know, we must have been mistaken. Because surely, this guy, he was the son of God. Right right when it looks as if Christ was the big loser, then all of a sudden you realize he's at the top of his game. You know, when you, if you've ever seen a, a movie or a, a, a picture of somebody being strapped into the electric chair, that moment of, of pure helplessness and weakness and defenselessness, well, that's the same kind of thing, but Jesus is anything but defenseless and helpless in this setting. If there was ever a time to write Jesus off as defeated, it would have been now. And then right as we're about to sign his death certificate, we hear some Gentile soldier acknowledging the very claim that Jews hated him for. And Jesus, once again, snatches victory out of the jaws of defeat. And you wonder if one of the Jews who are standing there watching all this heard this Gentile say what he said. And the Jew says to himself, oh, no. Not again. I thought we had defeated him. At this time, at this place, in what most would have considered consummate weakness, you watch Jesus as he displays strength. In this time, when his wounds are oozing his own blood, you watch him in his brokenness as he heals. In his defeat, he wins. And even here, now... At this point, he saves. He saves one of the thieves that are crucified alongside him. At this point where you would have thought he had been robbed of every one of his potentials, he commands, he promises, he controls, he, he even saves from the cross. In this moment of consummate weakness, the centurion sees strength. Divine, supernatural strength, which, which rends the veil over in the temple. And 
very possibly converted this Roman centurion. We don't know that for sure. We don't know, because he's never mentioned again, that he was converted. But we do know that he said something, the profundity of which he doesn't even fathom. Execution and strength. That, that, that's what you would call an anomaly. Those, those are strange bedfellows. Uh, the, the scandal of the cross and the declaration of his deity. Side by side. You know, all, all this comes as the centurion watches him die. He's not parting any Red Seas. He's not, he's not raising any dead people or healing lepers. He comes to this conclusion by watching him die. You know, I have a friend who's a physician, and um, part of his testimony is that the reason he came to know, to know Christ is that he watched Christians die. He said Christians outdie non-Christians. They do. And they learned it from Jesus. The way Jesus dies is so full of impact for this man that he says, this was the Son of God. You know, the the text says, and when the centurion who stood facing him saw He's watching a man die. And something about the way he died was revelational. Forcing the centurion to conclude, we were wrong. He's the son of God. At a point at which you would have concluded that he was at his weakest He's still converting people. You know, we have a saying, when when times get bad and when things are chaotic, we like to say, well, all hell broke loose. And you know, I, I think some may have concluded, perhaps even Satan, that here in this event, that all hell had broken loose, when in fact, it was all heaven breaking loose. This kind of reversal is Jesus' specialty. This kind of taking the yin and turning it into a yang. He's known for this. And we see it happening all the time. You know, guys, I, uh, I have developed somewhat of a love for the nation of the Czech Republic. I think some of you know that. You know, it used to be Czechoslovakia. Uh, but now it's divided into two nations, the, the Czech Republic and Slovakia. But um, as most of you know, the, the Czechoslovakia was overrun by the communists towards the end of World War II. And it stayed that way for 45 years. And um, you might remember all the stuff that began to go on back in the late 80s, 1989, in fact. There was uh, uh, Gorbachev's perestroika. And there was um, the Solidarity Movement by Wek Lewinsa. 
and then glass notes. You, you might have remembered some of that. And, and um, in September of 1989, Hungary, a, another nation that I've grown to love, Hungary opened its doors and began to permit East Germans to come through Hungary and make their way through the West or through Austria to freedom in the West. And there was, there was traffic jams of people trying to get out of East Germany through Hungary over to Austria and, and, and into freedom. And so the pressure began to mount so seriously that on November the 9th of 1989, November the 9th, remember that day, ladies and gentlemen, the Berlin Wall fell and the gates were swung open. In fact, um, Alastair McGrath calls it the, the twi- that day as the twilight of atheism. And then down in the Czech Republic, some eight days later, on November the 17th, there was a, there was a demonstration of students in Bratislava, which is now the capital of Slovakia. But in, in, a, in a Bratislava, I've been there, I've been in this very spot, there was a demonstration which was cruelly put down by riot police and the, the students were beaten. Two days later, on the 19th of November in 1989, there was another uh, demonstration in Prague, which is about uh, 100 miles away, and 200 miles away, in Prague of a half a million people on November the 19th, 1989. Eight days later, the communists resigned and fled on November the 27th of 1989. And, and a celebration erupted in the streets of Prague, in fact, all over Czechoslovakia, which has now become two countries, as I said. But a, a, a celebration erupted nationwide because communism had fallen. And all of, all of those squat little metal monuments that you see, those, you know, they, they, they had pulled them all down and they were lying on their face in the dust and little kids were dancing all over them. You can find this on the internet. I did. They're dancing all over these little pictures. They're dancing all over these communist um, monuments. There were, there were old women and, and, and pig farmers and dock workers and, and prisoners who had been let out. And they, they'd all prayed for this day for so long. And, and some of them had, had been imprisoned. Some had, some had died. But finally the day had arrived. Communism was washed up and on the run. And church bells began to ring all over the Czech, all over the Czechoslovakia, all over the country. Church bells that had not rung in 45 years began to ring at noon on the 27th of November. Every church bell in the country began to bong and dong and ding. And there was these, this, this thousands of pigeons that began to fill the skies, this, this kind of a uh, blur of white and gray fill the skies as, as pigeons fled from belfries from, that hadn't rung in 45 years. And the people in the streets were shouting so loud that they almost drowned out the music of the church bells. And in one church in the city of Prague, Someone made a sign, 
a sign about the size of this pulpit. And they stuck it out in the lawn in front of the church. And the sign simply read, The Lamb Wins. Back in the 70s, the United Nations sent a delegation of people into the former Soviet Union to examine and evaluate the health of the church uh, under communism. So they spent a month or two, you know, looking at the church and how she was doing under communism in the USSR. And, and they came back and uh, one of the delegates that had been over there said, rather indiscreetly, he said, it's just a bunch of old women praying. And now, where is the USSR anyway? And the church marches on. The lamb wins. Back in the spring of 1968, I was... um, I was on the travel squad of the University of Tennessee baseball team, and I was a sophomore that year. I wasn't a starter that year, and so they just took me to catch batting practice. I started my junior and senior years, but didn't start my sophomore year, and, and um, we were in Atlanta. Uh, we were there um, to play Georgia Tech, um, and it, we stayed in a place in downtown Atlanta and, and really didn't, wasn't a very nice place. I mean, it was, it was okay, but it wasn't much, but we were in pretty much downtown Atlanta, and it was... It was reported that Martin Luther King had been assassinated in my hometown, Memphis. And it was, uh, the coach got us off the streets, and it was scary. And uh, we went on and played the games, by the way. Um, I, I forget who won. Um, but we went ahead and played Georgia Tech and then went back to Knoxville. But, of course, that set in motion just some unbelievable series of events. And... and um, the, the civil rights movement about that time was um, somewhat in disarray. And the assassination of Martin Luther King was designed to sabotage that movement. And it almost did. Um, it, it, was, it was in a fragile state. And, and so at the, at the funeral service for Martin Luther King, there was a concern on the part of the civil rights leaders that, that not only were they there to bury Martin Luther King, but... That perhaps this might be the barrel of the whole civil rights movement. And so on the, the podium that day, there were, there were several um, dignitaries, politicians, preachers, eulogizers. And they all spoke, you know, in turn when it became their turn. And it was an awfully long um, event. But one of the speakers that day was a guy by the name of James Bevel. James Bevel was an old uh, African-American pastor, kind of squatty and, and uh, rotund. And, and uh, he, um, if, you've ever, if you've ever been a part of a meeting uh, dominated by the African-American world, it's a fun place to be. Um, they're certainly not like a bunch of you, us evangelicals who sit on our thumbs. But um, you get them in a worship service and, <clears throat> you know, some, some things can happen. Well, this was a bad, bad day for uh, the whole civil rights movement. And, and people, uh, you know, speaker after speaker after speaker went to the podium. And then it was James Bevel's turn. And so 
he, he got behind the podium and he was looking, um, rather stern and, and, uh, and disturbed. And, and of course, much in the, uh, the, the way that you find uh, the style of African American preachers, they, they start rather slow and low and they, they, they end with the flourish, with the big bang, you know, at the end. And, and, and James Bevel was no, no different, but, um, he had a, a, a very, um, uh, just a, a very deep and strong voice and he started rather not too loud, I guess. And, but you could tell that, that his, in his voice, it was, it was almost like some kind of storm was gathering on the edge of a, of a, of a clear day. And he, he stepped to the podium and he said, there's a false rumor going around that our leader is dead. Our leader is not dead. Martin Luther King is not our leader. And he paused and he, he waited for those words to sink down and, and to bite and to stir and to bruise. And, and, but people began to wonder, what's he going to do next? Is he going to turn this into some kind of political hornet's nest? What, where's he going? So James Bevel continued and he said, Our leader is the man who led Moses out of Israel. And about then, the the audience caught on and and they began to engage. And our leader is the man who led Moses out of Israel. And, And somebody in the audience shouted, that's the man. Bevel goes on. Our leader was the one who went with Daniel into the lion's den. And somebody else said, yeah, that's him. That's him. That's the one. Devil went on and said, our leader is the man who walked on water and quieted the storm. Yeah, so that's the one. You keep preaching. That's the one. Same man. Same man. That's him. The devil said, our leader is the man who walked out of the grave on Easter morning. And someone yelled, hallelujah. Our leader neither sleeps nor slumbers. Our leader can't be put in jail. No, no, not our leader. He can't be put in jail. Our leader has never lost a war yet. Our leader is still on the case. Our leader is not dead. One of our prophets died. But we will not stop because of that. Because our leader, our leader is not dead. And with that, what had been an otherwise somber meeting exploded. And James Bevel, by some, is is credited with galvanizing, once again, the whole civil rights movement and thrusting them into the streets once again because he told them, Our leader is not dead! And the lamb 
keeps on winning and winning and winning and winning. Even though it sometimes appears that all is lost. Just like here. My brother and sister in Christ, one day Jesus Christ is going to return. But he won't be coming on a donkey weeping. He won't be coming back on a cross dying. He will return on a stallion. A sword coming from his mouth, conquering as he comes. And on that day, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So between then and now, the dragon rages. The armies threaten and the the devil dances. But folks, some of you who may, may have concluded that all is lost. The lamb wins. He's still on the case. And not one thing anywhere can ever separate us from his love. And there is no greater love than this. To be loved before we've ever done anything to earn it. Don't forget that. The Lamb wins. Our Father, I do pray that you'll remind your people that in the midst of a culture that is trying to tell us that we should never hold out hopes for a conquering Christ that we might discover something through the simple statement of a Gentile soldier and even when things look the bleakest the lamb is still on the case and the lamb wins and so will we Lord Jesus Come. Come quickly. Come now. And find waiting for you a church that is so expectant, so eager, so faithful, so ready because we have a great love for the Savior who died in our place. 
Now, Father, give us a sense of the victory that is ours now, but one day will be consummated when Jesus Christ returns in glory. We await that day with eagerness. In Jesus' name we pray.